Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, you know, I haven't done the, one of those, oh, please give us a nice review kind of things in a long time. Um, I'm not sure it matters, though every now and then I look at like the charts or people send me stuff about the charts, and there are a lot of crappy podcasts um, above this one and like the Apple's in Apple's iTunes charts. Um, so if you can give us a nice review, uh, that'd be great. If you can't, don't. Um, you know, po- the o- I'll put it this way. The only reason I care about like the Apple iTunes rankings is because they're of the marketing. I actually don't believe the numbers behind them very much. Um, just because I know what, like, for example, our numbers are. And I'll see like these wild disparities between sometimes I'll be like wildly ahead of the dispatch podcast or vice versa when our numbers were remarkably similar or even I was ahead of them and yet I'm ranked lower or vice versa. The same thing used to happen when I was uh, doing the remnant over at national review where the, uh, the, the, the differences in spaces had nothing to, it seems to have very little correlation with the actual number of listens or downloads or whatever. Um, I'm not saying it's rigged or anything like that. Uh, I just think that their algorithm is much weirder and measures other things than just simply downloads. Um, sort of like the New York Times, you know, the no one really knows what their formula is, but one of the things that gooses it, at least allegedly, is the sort of pace of sales. Um, uh, that is weighted heavier than the, I don't want to say heavier because I don't know, but like it is weighted heavier than you would think um, compared to just sort of like raw sales because like if, if they feel like there's a big uh, galvanic sort of like the, the the curve could still be going up kind of thing. Apparently it gooses your ranking on the New York Times bestseller list. Maybe there's something like that going on with the iTunes thing, but part of it is also just like the state of statistics in podcast world is just really, really crappy. Uh, I didn't plan on going this long about this, but I just, you know, figured I'd start there. All these other podcasts always start with these, like, you know, if you can give us a five-star review, that would be great. And I realized I hadn't done that in a long time. So if you could, I guess it would be great. It certainly couldn't hurt. Um, and, um, you know, getting the, getting the word out there about the remnant or advisory opinions of the dispatch pod um or any of our other things would be would be great for everybody um maybe not everybody but 
for like the people I care about most. So uh, where to begin? I'm recording this on, uh, it's a little after seven on Thursday morning. I'm leaving in a few hours for uh, Alaska, north to Alaska. And um, I'm not going to be there that long, but I'm looking forward to getting up there. I'm not looking forward to the flight. The flight's very long. Um, and uh, I got to record the Dispatch podcast um, right after this. So I will... I would say I'll try to be economical in my talking, but that doesn't seem to often happen. I don't know. I guess where should I start? Um, well, uh, I've often said that uh, being annoyed is a muse, as in an inspiration. Um, you know, this is, and it's a reference to, uh, I wrote about this in my underrated second book. Uh, it's, a, it's a reference to something that uh, Bill Buckley had said to, uh, that George Will, Bill Buckley had said to George Will when George Will, first landed a syndicated column and then George was like, how am I going to write two columns a week? Um, and Buckley said, Oh, that's easy. At least two things a week will annoy you. And it's true that if you get annoyed by stuff, it's just, it's easier to find those creative juices. The problem is you don't want to get addicted to exactly that sort of hormonal cocktail. Otherwise all of your writing is just dyspeptic and angry. Um, and uh, I will not deny that I've had those phases in my career. Um, but last night, uh, you know, I, so I, yesterday I wrote uh, the Wednesday G file available to members of the dispatch community. And it was about Biden's, um, I, should, I should say just Biden's, the Democrats in general wanted to do this windfall profits tax. Um, you can call it you know, there are other names for it, like uh, excessive profits, surtax, uh, you know, whatever, uh, proctological reclamation enterprise, whatever, uh, for energy companies. And I just think, first of all, I think windfall profits taxes are insane and idiotic and terrible for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think Biden's embrace of this stuff is entirely political um, to the extent he's embracing it. He is definitely embracing it rhetorically. We'll see what, what actually can get passed and what he would actually sign. Um, but I was pretty critical of him and which I have been <laughs> many times over the last throughout his presidency. And, uh, the thing that it just annoys the crap out of me is I get this, including from dispatch members. This is the thing that sort of bums me out more. Like I'm used to getting this stuff on Twitter. I get it. I get it, uh, a hundred times a day on Twitter, people saying, um, you know, you wanted this, you voted for this, you supported Biden, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, you own this. But it's weirder when I get it from people who subscribe to the dispatch. And since only people who ha subscribe to this, I mean, maybe maybe it was, maybe someone gave a gift sub subscription to some folks and that who they were hoping to sort of convert to, you know, saner forms of conservatism or less partisan conservatism. And, um, and those who I was hearing from, but I got, I got some feedback from, from some folks saying, you know, in effect, you own this, this is your fault. You wanted this, you voted for Biden, you supported Biden, that kind of crap. And so like, you know, let me just work through this for a second so I can get the annoyance out of the way and I don't have to write about it or bring it up elsewhere. Um, a, I did not vote <laughs> for Joe Biden. I can't count how many times. I mean, I could, but it would be a waste of everybody's time, I guess, to go back into the archives. 
but I have said on this podcast, in writing, elsewhere, uh, to random people online at the coffee shop, that uh, I didn't vote for Biden. I didn't vote for Hillary either. Um, I also don't really care very much about my vote because I never lived anywhere where my vote really would sway an election um, one way or the other. Uh, I wrote I voted for that. I, I voted for that Evan McMullen dude in 2016, and I regret voting for him. I do not regret not voting for either Hillary or or, or Trump. Um, and in 2020, I'm very proud to say I wrote in Mitch Daniels, and I would do it again. Um, I very much want to live in the universe where Mitch Daniels is president. I'm very much on team democracy and team constitutionalism, but like Mitch Daniels for czar has a real nice ring to it to me. Um, uh, where was I? Okay. Yeah. So first of all, just on the facts, it's not true. Uh, on the more expansive understanding of how people mean that when they say you supported Biden, um, uh, it's really important for people to at least understand where I'm coming from, although I've given up hope that they will. Um, if, I criticize Biden. That doesn't mean I support Trump. If I criticize Trump, that doesn't mean I supported Biden. Uh, and it really wouldn't matter if I did support one or the other. If I'm criticizing the person I'm criticizing, if the criticisms are valid on their own merits, they're valid on their own merits. So many of these kinds of criticisms, which I've gotten my entire career, um, boil down to you're not being a team player and i find it just a like i, I mean i kind of get it from people who don't have you know who aren't writers or aren't you know um you know in the mix of journalism or that kind of thing and they see politics as like a you know sports or war or you know or uh, or entertainment and you think well if you're um, shouting criticisms at mem at the quarterback of my team, you must be rooting for the other team. And it's just, it just a, it's a logical fallacy. It's just not true. It's not, it's factually not true about me. Um, and I find it so tedious, uh, to, to, to have to like, it's, it's amazing how, you know, it's, it's like, what, what did Tocqueville call these things? Like a clear, but false idea when you get so married into this sort of tribal binary thing, um, it's just a fact of like your own moral logic that you're either with us or you're against us kind of thing. And, um, um, and I get it all the time. Okay. But I, I don't want to dwell on that cause it's so stupid. And I know you guys know this conversation well enough by now. Um, but then there's this other point that is very hard shockingly hard to explain to people let's say i was a, a total biden supporter right let's say i was much more of say the bill crystal variety and really thought like okay it's time to move the democratic party to the right and make you know and, and sort of do a reverse neocon thing where um conservative intellectuals and and activists and journalists leave the republican party the way that you know that kind of crowd left the democratic party 40 years ago. Um, but you know, this time around people like bill would lead a movement into the democratic party and they would change the democratic party for the better and make it a, 
a majority party and and the moderate party and revive the scoop Jackson, you know, sort of wing of, of the Democratic Party and yada, 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 and force change on the Republicans. Say that whole strategy, which I never bought into, worked, right? Um, or at least the, I believed it, right? Let's just say I voted for Biden and I supported Biden for all the reasons people think I did or think I should have, whatever. It still doesn't make me responsible for anything Biden does after he gets elected. Um, you know, that's just, that's, that's not how reality works. If, 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 if it worked that way, then literally everybody who voted for Bill Clinton voted for him to play Baron and the Milkmaid with an intern. Um, everybody who voted for Nixon, um, voted for the Watergate break in, right? Um, everybody who voted for Trump is, uh, you know, tried to steal the, the election and, and violate the constitution. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Sometimes, you know, like I mean, how many times do I have to talk about how politicians disappoint people? Um, you know, uh, I voted for George W. Bush. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm responsible for every, every, every mistake he did or did, you know, didn't make, um, events happen after other events. And so we have an election day and then we give this person a shot. And it, you can, it's perfectly fine to say you made, this proves you made the wrong choice or this proves I was right or this proves, you know, whatever, that theory was wrong. Um, but it, it doesn't make you actually responsible for what other people do. Um, and, you know, and part of the problem is, is with that sort of argument, and there's so many problems with it, is there's question begging involved, right? It, it, it uh, I'm I, I'm trying more and more to say question begging rather than that begs the question because so few people know that that begs the question does not mean that raises the question. But if you say question begging, um, uh, they're at least, okay, people at least think, all right, well, he's not saying that that raises a question and it gives me a chance to sort of explain what I mean. And what I mean is, is like everybody who's buying this, you know, uh, forget the attacks on me thing. Um, everyone who says, you know, none of this would have been happening if Donald Trump were still president. Um, that, that begs the question in the sense that that's question begging in the sense that it assumes facts that haven't been proven. Um, some of these, but I, like, I, I obviously think American politics and the economy and all sorts of things would be different if Trump were president. Um, that doesn't mean things would be better if Trump were president. It certainly doesn't mean things would be better if Trump were president because he convinced Mike Pence to, uh, you know, uh, take a leak from a great height on the constitution. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a temporal grass is greener. If only I had taken that, you know, that other road, everything would be great. And that's just like, that's not how life works. And, um, but regardless, like we're not responsible for, um, in any sort of like morally culpable, like factual way for the mistakes or the misdeeds, um, or the successes of politicians, um, that, you know, uh, that we voted for. We, we vote to give these people 
um, a shot at a job and then the job is on them and the people they hire and the administration and all that. And yeah, you can learn lessons about who to vote for next, but this, this, there's this just weird logic that like says it's, it's sort of like people see reality as one of those old choose your own event adventure books. Um, um, and they kind of assume that everybody's read the book already so that when you choose, uh, you know, the second course, you knew what was going to happen. Um, and therefore you deserve all the blame for it, um, or the credit or whatever. And it just, that's just not how things work. Um, and again, it doesn't apply to me in any specific way because I didn't vote for Biden. Um, I'm glad he beat Trump. I'm also, uh, annoyed that he, uh, is not doing a good job as president, um, which I guess we can talk about more if you want. Um, not that I can get any feedback in real time from you. Um, where else to go? Um, so I, I, I wrote a column in my LA Times column, also available at the dispatch, uh, about the January 6th committee hearings um, on Monday after, after Chris Darwalt uh, testified those hearings. And, uh, I, we don't have to get deep in the weeds in this, but I basically, um, I disagree with a lot of people on this. Like, um, my friends over at NR, I was listening to the national review podcast, the editor's podcast, and I think they're just too dismissive of this. Um, I think they're all intellectually honest about it. Um, and intellectually consistent about it. I mean, like my friend Charlie Cook's position is I thought Trump should, you know, his basic position is he thought Trump should be impeached immediately and barred from ever running again after January 6th. He was, he said for five years or whatever that Trump was unfit for office. He still thinks Trump was unfit for office, but he doesn't trust the partisan ambitions of the January 6th committee. And he feels like we know all of this, yada, yada, yada. And so therefore he just sort of yawns and shrugs and hasn't watched any of the January 6th committee. I agree with him on like on the factual stuff. I agree with, you know, Rich, who has a slightly similar um, position on this stuff. Um, but I disagree with the blaseness that they have about it and um, the sort of in the moment attitude they have about it. But they're paragons of virtue and, and, and intellectual integrity compared to, um, well, just they are on the merits, but also in particular compared to uh, the the various jabbering bandersnatches that we get on um, sort of in right-wing media about all of this. Um, I was thinking about writing about this. So if I do end up writing the Friday G file about it, I apologize for previewing it here. I think I talked about this a little bit with Starwalt as well. Um, this whole move on thing or old news thing that you hear from everybody, um, including the super serious house G house, um, House GOP Judiciary Committee, which whose Twitter account is increasingly becoming um, uh, just a frat bro account. Um, uh, you don't get to say things are old news unless you agree with the claims and the facts and the narrative um, that is being put forward. Um, and you know, the best factual way to think about this is, is the, you know, the phrase move on, which became move on.org and became this big left wing group called move on always couldn't stand them. I always thought they were lying 
when they said uh, that, you know, they originally cast themselves as this nonpartisan, non-ideological group of citizens that span the ideological spectrum who just wanted to end the national nightmare of the of the Lewinsky scandal and move on to the important jo- important things America needed to deal with. And it was all a lie. They were, in fact, a deeply ideological left-wing um, group. That's what they grew up to be. But regardless, the original, and for you kids, you're just going to have to like look up the Wikipedia entry on moveon.org or move on. I'm not going to spend that much time in those weeds. But the original argument during the Clinton impeachment stuff for move on was um, uh, once Clinton admitted that he'd been lying, um, including the under oath stuff and all that kind of thing, and apologized, um, the move on crowd said, um, okay, so Congress should, should, should censure him um, and then we should move on to other things, right? Just sort of take care of things. And uh, the crucial part, I mean, I want to come back to that center point in a little bit. So remind me psychically from the future. Um, but uh, I'm actually going to write it down because I know I forget these things while I talk to you people. Censure by Menon. Um, censure. I'm holding that. I'm talking about the future thing. Oh, the move on thing. So like, like, that argument, whether you thought it was legit or not, only worked if you conceded the facts of Clinton's misdeeds, right? If Clinton had still been denying them, or if every day new evidence was coming out of even greater and more terrible misdeeds, you can't say, look, this is settled. We all know what happened. Move on. You only get to say, look, this is settled. We all know what happened. He apologized. Move on. If the thing is settled, we all agree on what happened, and the person apologized. You know, I, I didn't like Clinton's apologies, but they were, you know, they were what they were. They were fine and all that. He admitted what he did. Uh, the facts were known, and the move on crowd said, "Okay, let's 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 formally censure him and move on." Um, the people making the move on argument now, the old news argument, um, we've heard all this before, which was to a person, the talking points of all of the Clinton spinners and sock puppets um, in 98 and 99. Um, you know, Paul Begala, all of them were, and I should say, Paul Begala is actually a really nice guy in person. I could not stand him back in the day. Oh my gosh, could I not stand him? Um, but, uh, um, that's all they would say with every new revelation. This is old news, right? Um, uh, I, quick digression on this. I remember when I'm, I'm sure I've talked about this before. Ron Brown, who was the commerce secretary who tragically died in a plane crash. Um, but he was Clinton's commerce secretary. Uh, he got caught up in some, like didn't pay his social security taxes, some, some sort of, you know, by Washington standards, certainly by today's standards, fairly minor, but you know, real scandal about his, his finances. Um, and he paid all of his back taxes in like, this is the way I remember it. So if I get it horribly wrong, I apologize. Um, uh, this was like 25 years ago. Um, he paid all of his back taxes on like, let's say December 22nd. 
And then he goes on Meet the Press with Tim Russert on like January 2nd. And Russert asks, asks him about all this. And he says, oh, Tim, this is such old news. I mean, I paid all of that stuff last year, <laughs> which was his way of saying like six days ago because the, you know, the calendar had flipped from whatever it was, 93 to 94. Um, uh, but anyway, this whole, this is old news. We've heard all this before. Nothing new here. You know, move on. That was the standard argument, uh, or I should say rhetorical tactic and spin uh, during the Clinton stuff. And you're hearing it all over again now. And the thing that's very frustrating to me is that I seem to have missed the part where Jim Jordan and Newt Gingrich and all the Fox primetime people um, and all the other usual suspects uh, admitted that what Trump did was terrible, uh, an assault of on the Constitution, um, essentially defrauding the public and his biggest supporters, um, and that the January 6th assault on the Capitol was an indefensible and grotesque um, transgression that Trump, at least to some significant degree, inspired, instigated, and made possible, and also did nothing to stop. Um, like, when have all those guys admitted that? Because that's that's the narrative of the January 6th committee, right? That's that's the essence of what all this testimony is pointing to. Um, and just as a matter of fact, it's not all old news. Like, I didn't know until the January 6th committee um, came along that the the avant-garde of the 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 Trumpist fascisti, these these um proud boys and oath keepers, they left before Trump's speech was over. I think even some before Trump's speech began to to preposition for assaulting the Capitol. Like you can't argue that this was a spontaneous thing where a few hotheads in the crowd that Trump was talking to and told to march on the Capitol. Um that, you know, it wasn't deliberate incitement. It was just sort of a thing that got out of hand. If these guys were showing up at that place with all that gear well before Trump ever asked anybody to march down to the Capitol, um, you know, I, that's that was new to me. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that's been new, but let's just sort of stipulate that it's that even though there are new facts, um, let's just stipulate, even though I don't completely agree with it, um, that the general outlines of the case haven't changed, right? So that's what's not new. Fair enough, okay? Um, you know, Jim Jordan and all these guys, all you know, all the sort of Federalist types, whatever, or most of them, um, never mind, you know, American greatness crowd, all that, uh, they don't, I mean, they never came out and said, you know, that case is correct. We all agree on it. And Donald Trump certainly hasn't apologized or come clean in any way about any of it. Um, and so I just, I find the let's move on thing, uh, you know, completely inappropriate for this situation. Like, and so that brings me back to the censure thing. This thing has a lot of, you know, and I think Andy McCarthy is right. 
you know, and and he's not the only one who's said it, but like, you know, this really is a, you know, impeachment by other means committee. Uh, you know, that's what I wrote about two weeks ago about how none of this was necessary if if Congress had done its job the right way when the moment required, you know, leaders to step up and lead. Um, but that that effort to just censure Clinton rather than, you know, impeach him. I was very sympathetic to it at the time, which, you know, people didn't, you know, didn't believe me or whatever, but it's true. Um, you know, I was more concerned about just getting the truth out there and then, and to borrow a phrase, moving on, um, than I was about, you know, having Clinton impeached. I will, I will say, I didn't think I probably part of my reasoning for not wanting Clinton, not being too gung ho for impeaching Clinton had to do with the fact that, I thought it'd be a bad look for Republicans, um, which obviously is less of a concern of mine these days. But um, uh, but the problem is, is that people get uh, that partisans get themselves worked up, and there's like this internal logic of their own positions where falling short of what is perceived to be the maximum punishment um, feels like. Um, cowardice or surrender and so like republicans you know who would have been happy with censure um you know earlier uh, before you know clinton dragged it all out and everyone got invested and bought into their positions and everyone got sort of like into their corners on cable news and shouted at each other if they had um if clinton had you know apologized and admit, admitted it, apologized, and you know, threw himself on the mercy of Congress. My hunch is that Republicans would have been happy to censure him, and and no one would have talked about impeachment. But you let these things fester so long, and you can't stop it. Just censure. Same exact thing happened with um, Trump with the first impeachment. Um, second impeachment is a little different, um, but with the first impeachment, you know. Trump took the dumbest friggin' position, which was everything that he did was absolutely perfect. Uh, not that what he did was, you know, a mistake, or I could see how you think what I did was a mistake, but that his phone call with Zelensky was perfect, his behavior was perfect, everything was perfect. He's great. You're all liars, and that gives that gave you know Democrats no place to go. If he had sort of just um, you know, admitted to, you know, mistakes were made or whatever, or I, I was poorly staffed or, or whatever. I don't think it would have gone to an impeachment. Um, uh, he might've gotten censured, but like the Trump White House insisted that censure was outrageous too. And that just forced people into, you know, their, their most extreme positions. And so you're seeing the same logic now with this whole idea of a, um, of criminal charges against Trump. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think criminal charges against Trump, um, if the facts that I believe to be the facts are, are proved, could be proved in court, um, totally justified. I, I think, you know, you know, he should be, um, he should be in jail. I mean, I think that's just factually true. Um, as a, I shouldn't say that factually true. I think it's, it is my conviction that, um, that, 
from my interpretation of the facts as we know them, that that would be a befitting and just end for him personally. It would be terrible for the country to try and put him on trial. You're not going to be able to prove what you want to prove. Uh, criminal prosecutions of, of the president from the previous administration are fraught with all sorts of banana stand kind of problems. Um, it would uh, foment and encourage violence in this. I mean, just it's a bad idea. Um, and uh, but I get why people. But the, here's the that's the problem this is like I was just listening to some of Morning Joe this morning and they're all working themselves up into a lather about how, you know, so John Eastman or. Or some of the grifters, you know, you know, Ali Alexander or Steve Bannon, those guys might go to jail and get the ringleader doesn't. That's outrageous. And I get it as a matter of like, you know, moral logic um, and abstract consistent, you know, pursuit of sort of consistency on things. But it's just not very much a, a smart real world thing. Um, but look, I'm look. We may find out new things that say the guy's got to get an orange jumpsuit to match his, you know, his his makeup. Uh, who knows? What I think is really kind of weird and dumb, um, unless it's done for publicity purposes, and then it's kind of brilliant. Is this whole debate about whether or not the January sixth committee is going to do a criminal referral for Donald Trump? Um, I'm okay with criminal referrals for other people. And I think there's an argument to be made there, but like, uh, um, but that's sort of beside the point too, because here's the thing is like the only entity that can do a criminal prosecution of anybody at, in this context is the DOJ and the FBI, right? I mean, it's not going to be like the DC police and, um, uh, and they're already on record saying they're looking into all of this, right? They're already on record saying they've um, that they're watching the hearings closely. Uh, Merrick Garland gave some sort of graduation address where he basically said, "You know, we um, are taking this deadly seriously, and we're looking at every allegation and every new fact and all of the evidence, and we will make the appropriate determinations." Well, that's the answer you get when Congress makes a criminal referral. Crim Congress can't say to the DOJ, charge this dude with a crime. All they can do, a criminal referral just means, hey, DOJ, can you look at this? We think a crime was committed, and now you have to make a determination. Um, and the thing is, the DOJ is already doing that, right? It's already on right. So like when Adam Schiff or, or even Liz Cheney, you know, God bless her, um, talk about these, you know, it's it's an open question where we're going to do a criminal referral um, on the factual merits or substance of the question it's all a light show it's all a redundancy because again the criminal referral has already in effect been made to the doj because the doj is already doing what it would do if congress had sent over a criminal referral um you know it's sort of like if you know you're making your bed and your wife says you know you should make the bed. Oh, I'm making it right now. You know, it's that's happening. It's just happening right now. It's a terrible analogy, but you get my point. Um, but so where I get where I think that the um, even the smart folks 
who I respect a lot, when they get sort of blase about this and I don't care about this um, because I already know the facts and I already feel like Trump was a bad guy and all that thing, all that kind of thing. Um, I got no problem pointing out the partisanship of, of Benny Thompson and, and Jamie Raskin and Adam Schiff. Um, that's all true. That's all fine. I do. I think it's perfectly fine to say, to condemn or criticize Democrats for wanting to use this cravenly to help them in the midterms, which they are. I mean, it's kind of obvious and it's amazing how much help, um, liberal journalists, um, give Democrats to, to make that argument seem legitimate. You know, it's sort of the gen Rubenization of everything. Um, you know, Nicole Wallace is like, like walking through ways in which on live on TV in ways in which the January 6th committee could help Democrats, um, in the midterms. And, uh, I think that's grotesque and stupid. You know, there's even a partisan motivation and somewhat with what Liz Cheney is doing. I think it's more high minded. What she's trying to do is like save the Republican Party from giving into this, you know, this this sort of corruption of a cult of personality. But she's not looking at specific elections the way, you know, the Democrats are um, and the way a lot of the enabling media um, are, I think all of those criticisms are valid and I, I've made them and I, uh, and I agree with others that I haven't made. Um, at the same time, like I think conservatives are wrong. Even the ones I consider friends and, 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 and admire their intellect, personal intellectual consistency. I, and integrity, I think they are making a bad calculation when they in effect rhetorically are joining a kind of intellectual popular front with uh the people who are calling this stuff you know like newt gingrich and that crowd um keep calling this a stalinist show trial and that this is a you know you know something that makes stalin envious and yada 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 um that's garbage that's stupid um and when you ratify for people the sort of Tucker Carlson argument that you shouldn't pay any attention to, to this um, because it's partisan, yada, 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 um, you're basically encouraging people to actually not grapple with the reality of, of what happened um, or open themselves up to new information. Um, everyone seems to, you know, I mean, like everybody seems everybody who says the, these hearings are boring and stupid, um, or, or gratuitous, uh, they seem completely confident that they have all the information that they need. And, um, I just don't think that's true. And I'll give you an example of this with the exception of, of Noah Rothman, no one I've seen has made a big deal of the fact that we've already had another, we had another constitutional crisis on January 6th that, um, isn't of itself, outrageous um just on the merits uh and i don't blame mike pence for this even though what he did was really constitutionally problematic he basically be he unilaterally became president on his own volition because trump was up uh you know watching tv either hoping the goon squads would succeed or brooding that they wouldn't and wondering why, you know, more people weren't coming and, and, and giving baby his bottle. Um, and he just checked out 
you know, and this is the argument I've made for a long time. Uh, it was Andy McCarthy's argument, you know, that the best article of impeachment against Trump for the January 6th stuff would have been dereliction of duty because the Capitol was under attack. He was be, he was justifiably and, and legitimately informed by the appropriate parties that the National Guard should be sent in, that, that you know, that um, a constitutional process uh, was being disrupted by, you know, mob violence. And he did nothing. He let it play out. And that's outrageous and disgusting. It, even if he didn't play a significant role, which I think he did, but even if he didn't play a significant role in fomenting and, and instigating that violence, the fact that he did nothing to stop it would be outrageous. And in fact, the fact that he did nothing to stop it is pretty good evidence, circumstantial, but circumstantial evidence is still, it's, it's real evidence. Lots of trials are won based solely on circumstantial evidence. People think that circumstantial evidence means coincidences. It doesn't. And the fact that like, uh, that Trump did nothing to stop that thing for what was it like three and a half hours or three hours, um, is a pretty good, um, indicator that he had something to do with the fact that it happened in the first place. Because, you know, if the narrative is, oh, he was horrified by that and he had nothing to do with it and he was surprised by it. Why did he just sit down and watch TV and let it unfold? You'd only sit down and let it unfold on the screen if you kind of have some investment in it, right? And um, um, but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. But while he was, you know, basically doing nothing, um, Mike Pence, who has no authority when the when the president is, you know, um, uh, you know, not in a coma or whatever, or indisposed or whatever. Um, Mike Pence just basically ordered the National Guard in. He mobilized military forces. That's that's like a coup, you know. I mean, like the uh, and don't get me wrong. I'm glad he did it. Um, he did the right thing, but the fact that he was felt forced into that situation is a constitutional crisis. Um, you know, I mean, let's put it this way: if if I mean, if Joe Biden, you know, just says, uh, I'm going to my basement, see ya, and Kamala Harris starts uh, mobilizing the National Guard on her supposed own authority, a lot of, you know, my friends would say, oh, that's <laughs> that's a constitutional crisis. Well, that's what happened on January 6th. And, you know, you should read Noah's stuff about this because he's like the only one I've seen who's pointed out how screwed up that is. Um, and, uh, and I don't think, you know, maybe it came out in some of these books, some of this stuff, but I don't think we really, you know, grasped all of that and educating the public on that uh, with the January 6th committees, I think is valuable. But at the end of the day, like, I agree with most of the critics about the committee. This is, you know, I wrote about this week, but like, I, you know, Trump's not going to jail. Democrats aren't going to win the midterms because of this. Um, I'm not going to get my incredibly satisfying, uh, you know, confessions of wrongness from all the wrong people. Um, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy is still probably going to be speaker. I mean, like the, and in fact, you know, the Democrats, 
I don't even think really appreciate the fact that to the extent the January 6th committee is going to be successful, going to be a success beyond sort of laying down a historical record, probably its greatest accomplishment will be to make the Republican Party more competitive and healthier, which is not what they're trying to do. Um, because at the end of the day, the best thing about the committee, other than getting the facts out there and, you know, and, and I, I really hope that they release all the transcripts and all that kind of stuff, because that's really kind of the point. If the, if the report doesn't have a massive appendix with all of this stuff in it, then I think it's, it's, it's not criminal, but it's pretty, it would be pretty outrageous. But what this committee is doing is it's creating more space for Republicans to, to speak honestly about Donald Trump and to sort of fill even the most partisan among the most partisan Republicans. I mean, not the Dinesh grifter crowd, but like, you know, like Republicans who want Republicans to always win and all that kind of stuff and have their careers invested in the, in the Republican party and all that. Um, it gives them more permission to speak openly about how we got to stop looking backward. We got to look forward that we got to, you know, that, that, that Trump is the past and the future is DeSantis or whoever. Um, it gives more voters permission to sort of not listen to Trump except as an entertainer. Um, at the margins, you know, some people will in fact hopefully realize that they were being conned all along with all of these lies about, you know, the legal defense thing. Um, it makes more of the sort of grifter crowd radioactive and polite society. Um, you know, and the, the, you know, the way I put it in the column was you know, look at Bill Stepien. Now I, I think it's perfectly legit to criticize him for only doing the right thing when subpoenaed. Um, but he's a pretty typical Republican party apparatchik. He'll do the right thing uh, when, absolutely forced to or when the circumstances absolutely require it um but otherwise it'll just sort of stay but he won't do things to hurt the party right and so he told trump the truth about how trump lost uh he declared himself sort of part of team normal um and then he shut up and did nothing and sat on the sidelines when trump you know continued to whip up people claiming that the election was fraudulent and stolen and all that and then January 6th committee comes along and says, tell the truth. And he tells it. And, you know, the fact that he didn't take the fifth, the fact that he didn't, you know, opt to fill his testimony with obfuscations and word clouds and all that kind of stuff, like some of the others apparently did, um, tells you that he's, you know, he, he sees a path for his continued success, a path for his future. The fact that he was going to be willing to testify in the first place, which, you know, given the nature of this committee and that it's, 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 it's not an adversarial committee. The only people you're going to see testify in person are people that, you know, are going to say pretty much what the committee wants them to say. It doesn't mean they're going to lie. It just means that they know what their testimony is and they've arranged it. Um, and, um, the fact that he was willing to testify until, you know, his wife went into labor suggests that the political winds are moving away from Trump. And I think that's good. And I think the committee is doing that is, is, is helping in that regard. Um, it's an unintended consequence for pretty much everybody, but maybe Liz Cheney. Um, 
uh, at least that's the way it seems as of this moment. We got another hearing today, which I hope I can somehow see or listen to on the plane. Oh, and just like, just to circle back on this thing. Look, I, I get rhetorical excess. People accuse me of being a hypocrite every time I criticize rhetorical excess. And a lot of jackwads will uh, send me, you know, is this you? Is it, are you saying, is this, the, are you the same guy who did this? And they will send me a cover of liberal fascism and, um, um, and say I have no right to criticize rhetorical excess. I'm not going to bore you guys with another explanation of where the phrase liberal fascism came from in any detail, but. I didn't coin the phrase, it comes from H.G. Wells. Um, the smiley face is a reference to a George Carlin bit. Both of these things are explained, or the George Carlin bit for sure is explained um, on page one, page two maybe, um, of the book. And, uh, and as many a reviewer has pointed out, I go to great lengths over and over again to say that I don't think you know liberals are literally Nazis. That's not my point. Yada, yada, yada. You can read the book. You can see it for yourself. I stand by it. I mean, I, I, as I've said a million times now, and I even wrote on the anniversary of January 6th, I got some stuff wrong. Um, and I certainly, I've said for years, I would write the second half of that book differently. Um, um, but one of the things I got wrong was I got wrong about how susceptible the right is to actual fascism. Look, you can't look at the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and those guys storming the Capitol and not, and all their talk, and are you listen to Michael Flynn and these idiots, um, these crazy friggin' idiots, um, and, and Nazi fascism in it or proto fascism or fascistic like tendencies. But, this crazy emphasis on masculinity, the crazy emphasis on militarism and on nationalism and, and blood and soil and also violence and um, uh, metaphorical war and real war and 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 all that. It's it's pretty textbook fascistic. And, um, you know, the the march on the Capitol has a lot of similarities with the march on Rome. And um, but that's not my point. So like but like Newt calling this thing Stalinist is a is without any sort of like tip of the hat or nod to the fact that he's just using rhetorical excess. Um, and I see this all over the place. People calling it, you know, Stalinist. It's a Soviet show trial. It's, it, you know, this would make Stalin envious, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Stalin would envy like the cameras and stuff and maybe the air conditioning. Um, um, but like Stalinist show trials involved, like telling people in back rooms, you're going to go out in front of everybody and, and confess to these entirely made up charges, or we're going to murder your wife in front of you. Right. Or, you know, they would torture people for days and then say, we're going to do this to your kids. If you don't confess to this, that, or the other thing, this is not a Stalinist show trial. If you want to call it an infomercial, um, you know, that, I think that's fine. You know, uh, I, mean, I disagree with it, but like that's within the realm of like rhetorical excess. That's fine. You can call it a reality show, which Newt also did in, did in this piece that he wrote. And, um, you know, the thing is, is like a reality show and a Stalinist show trial are different things. They're just different. You know, one revolves a lot less blood than the other. Um, and, uh, 
I personally think the way to think about this, and I kind of admire the discipline that has produced it. Um, I, I, I think the criticisms that the thing's not more adversarial are correct. Um, uh, I think the problem is, is that like Jim Jordan, you know, like the decision to go without Jim Jordan, those guys was very partisan. That is the attempt to put Jim Jordan and, and those doofuses on the committee was very partisan. It was a, the, the, the whole thing was a, the whole design of this thing was a screw up because of a breakdown in, in game theory about who could be the more partisan and all that, that fine. And I do think it would be better and more convincing and actually better theater, which, you know, in the theatrical part is important. If this, if this had some either, you know, more loyal Republican types or even more pro Trump Republican types in there to raise some objections, um, because I think most of the objections they would raise can be shot down. Um, you know, I mean, all these people say, oh, it's, it's a farce because Jim Jordan's not on there. Well, like the idea that anything would be less of a farce if Jim Jordan had participated in it is sort of on its face problematic, but let's say it's true. Um, you know, what would, what would be the things that Jim Jordan would be bringing up? You know, uh, um, my hunch is that 95% of it would be, you know, you know, two coke, you know, stuff about how Benny Thompson is a hypocrite or voted to not certify electoral votes or whatever. Uh, those are all perfectly fine criticisms. They just don't speak to the facts of what happened on January 6th or what Donald Trump's plan was um, once he lost the election or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, you could... You can make the case, you can shoot the messenger all day long. It doesn't touch the message. And, um, but I think that would have all made it better. Uh, I don't know, better with John Jordan, but I think having a more adversarial, more traditional committee would have been better. What um, I was going to say is that I think the be best analogy for this thing is that this whole thing has been one long prosecutor's brief. Um, and again, I think that, 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 or prosecutor was summation um, where they're using facts and evidence to make an argument and they're and the American people are some kind of jury and it's definitely one-sided, but prosecutors, you know, summations are always one-sided because they're the prosecution. And, um, and that this sort of just points to the tragedy that this wasn't all done in an impeachment trial where you would have people with an opportunity to respond to all of it. Um, but I think that's the best analogy to it is it's a one-sided prosecution's prosecutor's brief or prosecutor's, you know, summary um, without a right to rebuttal. And that's a perfectly legitimate thing to criticize as a matter of procedure and all that. But it's not an argument. It's not a rebuttal of what they're actually saying. And, and, and so I, I you know, I, 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 I've had sort of regret all week because I sounded like I was more critical of, of Annie McCarthy than I intended um, the other day when we were talking to Starwall. But this is sort of what I was getting at. I love Andy and Andy's brilliant. And, and I think he's uh, full of integrity. I'm not criticizing him at all. But I saw him after the the hearing or before the hearing and the pre you know thing with with Jonathan Turley and a few other people. And he was focusing on a lot of these kinds of arguments. And, um, and so was Turley and so was everybody else. And I get, I think these are, again, I think these arguments are entirely valid, but 
if you're doing that in the context of Fox News programming, what you're basically doing is conceding, and, and, and Andy would concede, he thought Trump should be impeached. Um, but what, what you're doing more broadly is conceding the substance and getting hung up on the procedure. And I get why lawyers get hung up on procedure. This is, I have had this criticism of lawyers in, in every impeachment thing um, where they take the language and metaphors from, from criminal court cases and they apply it to a political trial. And that's what impeachment trials are. They're political trials. That doesn't make them show trials. There's a difference between a political trial as the Constitution lays out where the Senate serves as jurors to judge things that aren't explicitly violations, aren't necessarily violations of criminal law, but they are violations of constitutional duties. And um, anyway, the my only point is, is like if if all if 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 all of the commentary on Fox outside of primetime is basically like this is bad procedure, this is uh, you know. Democrats have made a mistake doing it this way. Um, this won't have any effect. This is old news. All these kinds of things. Uh, that's basically Fox buying into uh, this point I was making earlier about giving people safe space to admit Trump's flaws and to admit that what Trump did was bad. And that it contradicts what the guys in primetime are saying I think is interesting at the very least um, and kind of amusing. You know, when Tucker goes out there and says these trials are, the, the, these hearings are j an insulting lie and they're totally illegitimate and we're not going to cover this, you know, this garbage. We're not even going to have commercial breaks for it. And then over on Fox Business, Brett and those guys are covering it like an actual news event. And then in the morning, the news programs are all covering it like an actual news event. Um, I think it kind of makes Tucker look ridiculous um, within Fox, right? Um, but that's just me, and we know I have my disagreements about all that. Um, all right, my thing, my podcast is about to begin, and I got to finish some other stuff. Uh, I really liked talking to Father Sirico. Um, I felt like a lot of it was, um, it was sort of like bringing in a new expert witness to sort of recap a lot of arguments I've been making around here for a long time. And I, I hope people don't think I used him that way. Um, such a sweet, good dude. Um, and it occurred to me afterwards, uh, I know some remnant fans and certainly fans of suicide of the West, um, the book, not the phenomenon, I should add. Um, uh, we're surprised when we were talking about the Godfather that I didn't bring up, you know, my favorite point about the Godfather, um, um, in terms of eggheadery, um, which do credit. I first learned about from Paul Ray in a really brilliant essay. Um, but I don't think I've talked about it on here for a while. I remember at the 500th remnant Palooza, um, some people thought it should be on the bingo card. And I thought that was a little surprising because, um, I haven't talked about Americo Bonacera, um, in a long time. So I, I'm going to recap here. And for those of you who, um, remember this deep cut, you can, you can go get a cup of coffee or whatever, or switch to the, to the advisory opinions podcast. 
Um, um, but I just, it would have been fun to talk to him about this. So I might as well just sort of, and I, I just think this is, it's really neat because, and, and interesting because I'd seen the Godfather like 50 times before anyone, before anyone pointed this out to me. Um, this point that, you know, Paul Ray goes on at, you know, at essay length about, and it's really a brilliant insight. Um, so the opening scene, right. Of the Godfather is the wedding scene and Don Corleone is in his study. And as tradition would have it, uh, the Godfather cannot refuse any requests on the day of his daughter's wedding. And so there are all these supplicants waiting outside to go in, you know, there's, um, Luca Brazzi out there rehearsing how he hopes, uh, Don Corleone's grandson is a masculine child. And, but the first in line, um, for an audience with the Godfather is Amerigo Bonacera. Um, and he's the undertaker and he begins to tell the story. You know, he says, I raised my daughter in, in the American fashion. I believe in America. America's made me my fortune. I gave my daughter her freedom and yet taught her never to dishonor the family. This is like the version from the book. I'm just looking at my book, which I, I have, I opened it up. Um, anyway, he tells a story about how these bad boys, um, essentially raped her, right. And, or tried to rape her and beat her and she kept her honor, blah, 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 blah. Um, and Bonacera explains how he goes to the police and, um, uh, and the judge lets them off with, um, a suspended sentence, suspended sentence. Um, and he's outraged by this. And he basically goes and asks, uh, Don Corleone, the Godfather, um, for what he says is justice. And what he thinks is justice is having these people, these boys killed. Um, and Don Corleone does this great sort of, uh, I guess what the Straussians might call, um, Socratic logos. So Don Corleone asks, um, why'd you go to the police first? Why didn't you come to me? And Bonacera doesn't really understand it. Um, um, and he just says, you know, tell me what you want from me, do what I'm asking you. And Corleone says, well, what does it want me to do? And he says, I want you to, you know, he whispers that he wants him to murder the boys. And, um, and he says, and, and Bonacera says, and I'll pay you anything. And Corleone, um, uh, goes nuts about this. He gets furious and, um, I should probably just stop looking at the book because, uh, I'm trying to do it from memory and I know that I have memory of the, the movie and I do it mostly from the actual book of the Godfather in, in my book. But anyway, already too long story short, uh, when he offers to pay Corleone to, to do murder, um, or to bring justice or whatever, uh, Corleone gets really, really angry, um, and says, you know, why do you treat me with this disrespect? That kind of thing. And, um, and then he gives him this little lecture. He says, look, when you came here, you wanted to be a good America. You didn't want to be my friend. You wanted to be, um, 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 you know, this, this good American who plays by the rules. Um, even though my wife was godmother to your child or whatever. And, you know, and Bonacera is like, I wanted to be a good American, yada, yada, yada. And, um, and so then you have basically what Don Coglione says to him is, um, this is from the book. He says, 
um, why do you fear to give me your first allegiance? Or why do you fear to give your first allegiance to me? Um, you go to the law courts and wait for months. You spend money on lawyers who know full well you are made, you are to be made a fool of. You accept judgment from a judge who sells himself like the worst whore in the streets. But if you had come to me for justice, those scum who ruined your daughter would be weeping bitter tears this very day. If by some misfortune an honest man like yourself made enemies, they would become my enemies. And then perhaps... And then, believe me, they would fear you. And then the Undertaker finally gets it, and he says, um, please be my friend. And um, Paul Ray, you know, who goes on at considerably more length about all of this, this exchange, which, again, I'd seen at the beginning of The Godfather a gazillion times. This is a very ancient Roman concept, you know, um, and there's some Latin phrase I can't remember for it. Um, but what the Godfather represents in that scene is the way the old world worked, right? It's the way um, every tribal society, it's the way ancient Rome, um, uh, it's the way Europe uh, and Asia and lots of parts of the world still operate today where you have clans and guilds and tribal loyalties and aristocrats, you know, and, and various um, forms of aristocracy where the 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 binds of society the things that bind society are personal allegiance um and personal loyalty to uh um to leaders to 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 relatives um that kind of thing and the rules of the liberal democratic order don't exist right and so that's the tension in that scene because bonacera wanted to be good america and then america because he ran into, you know, a corruption of what America is supposed to be about. He lost faith in it and went back to the old ways of, of, of giving first loyalty to essentially a warlord, to essentially a chieftain, right? Um, to the head of, uh, you know, a Roman clan from ancient Rome. Um, uh, what was the, I can't remember the name of the, the, different clans i gotta go rewatch rome anyway um and so this was a giant step backwards where where bonacera had realized that uh the american system wasn't actually what he was he thought it was supposed to be and the system is rigged and so that he says okay well i'm gonna fall back on a kind of justice i understand and um that can be relied upon and it's the justice of of sort of a familial moralism, the, the, the justice of, of sort of tribal reciprocity and, and of, of um, pre-modern power politics. And that's what Don Corleone represents. He represents that way that politics was done for most of human history. And um, I always thought, and so once it hit me, I think about it all. I used to think about it all the time when I was writing the book, you know, this is, this is what you get when you lose faith in the constitutional order, in the miracle of liberal democratic capitalism, in the rule of law, um, uh, is you sort of like Chesterton's thing about how if you convince people God doesn't exist, it's not that they'll believe in nothing, it's that they believe in anything. Um, people fall back on older forms of politics that are more in line with human nature. 
and this sort of sort of tribal groupish uh coalitional power politics form of politics is much more natural than liberal democratic capitalism and um so when you convince people uh that liberal democratic capitalism is a fraud that it's just a thin veneer hiding self-dealing and corrupt institutions and corrupt politicians they feel like suckers for going along with it right this is the essence of the trumpian argument um and if you tell people that they're suckers for going along with uh you know the the constitutional arguments um of of sort of the rule of law and liberal democratic capitalism and that the system is rigged for other people then you're they they say well okay then i'll behave as if it's rigged too and this is like basically the suicidal choice in suicide of the west is that when you lose faith in these norms customs traditions laws you know the whole kit and caboodle that you know that made the miracle possible 300 years ago um you fall back into uh that's a form of corruption right it's, it's a kind of rot where you're you're giving in to the corrupting influences of human nature and i see that i just bluntly that's where how i see the nationalist stuff you know the hazoni stuff that's how i see this post liberal integralism stuff uh this you know um desire to have uh um ends justifies justifies the means constitutional interpretation this is going back to sort of medieval or roman understandings of how law works um and that you know power wins out and this is what father sirico and i were getting at is that at the end of the day this isn't about coming up with just laws this is about getting yourself on the politburo and you can give it marxian names and soviet names or fascist names or whatever but it's the same corruption it's the same sort of view that says um these lofty higher ideals that constrain me are illegitimate because i suspect they don't constrain other people and so i don't have to play by your rules anymore and um and this temptation this this seduction um this corruption uh exists in every generation because it's always around because they're always people they're always going to be corrupt judges right i think there are fewer than there have ever been but they're always going to be corrupt judges they're going to be corrupt politicians they're always going to be self-dealing that's why we have criminal laws that's why we have all sorts of things right i mean um if men were angels yada yada and the but the point is is that um when you turn so when you turn that into an actual ideology that gives you permission to storm the capital permission to defend people who storm the capital um permission to assume that judges are corrupt so we might as well have our corrupt judges on there instead of their corrupt judges um the rot goes much deeper and it's much more dangerous and much more suicidal and that's why in the godfather um america bonacera was named america bonacera because America Bonacera means literally good night America. And it's good night America if those if that kind of thinking succeeds and takes over important institutions, including the Republican Party. And that's one of the reasons why I'm in favor of the January 6th committee. Um, not because it's going to hurt the Republican Party. I mean, it might hurt it 
even if it was going to destroy it in the midterms, I would still be in favor of it because in the long term, I think it helps the Republican Party by helping it fend off and cut out the corruption. And uh, with that, um, I'll see you next time.